The, uh, the story is told of a woman who, while reading her Bible on an airplane, was interrupted by a man that was sitting in the seat next to her. The man, having uh, watched her read for over an hour, finally had enough and asked this question. He said, you don't really believe that stuff, do you? And she said, actually, I do. He goes, you're going to tell me you believe all those outrageous stories. Jesus walking on water, walls falling down because people shouted or blew a trumpet, you know, the Red Sea parting. You believe all that stuff. She said, yes, I do. He said, then explain to me how a guy could live in the belly of a whale for three days and survive. And the woman responded, well, you know, when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. And this guy looked at her and said, you know what, what if he's not there? He said, well, well then you can ask him. You know, you know, we smile and, and, you know, we smile at such stories and, you know, when you think about it, we hear the use of the word hell in daily conversations and don't give it much thought. This past week, uh, Linda and I were at a restaurant and uh, we're sitting outside waiting to get in and um, there was an older gentleman who came out with his grandson and uh, the grandson asked, you know, hey, grandpa, where's the car? And he said, you know, it's way the hell over there. And I just sat, and I think I was more sensitive to that because of the, the nature and the topic of, uh, of what we're going to be addressing today. But throughout the course of the week, I noted how many times I heard the word used in just conversation. You know, how the hell are you? Uh, you know, what the hell were they thinking? On the news last night, they interviewed an older woman who lived in Florida. And uh, it was after the aftermath of the hurricane, uh, Charlie, that hit there. And she was being interviewed, and she said, you know, when they tell you to leave, you just better get the hell out of here. And, you know, all of those things made me think, but the one that made me think the most this past week was, it was a statement that was made at the memorial service of a man who openly admitted he had absolutely no belief in God whatsoever. And during the course of the eulogy, they said of this fellow, he was one hell of a guy. You know, and based on what we're about to read in Luke 16, that friend has no idea how accurate his statement was. Some time ago, a traffic officer gave a citation to a woman in Brooklyn, New York. When the officer handed it through the window to her, she snapped it out of his hands and said, You can go straight to hell. The officer, obviously upset by it, took her to court. And during the course of the particular hearing, the judge said this, and quote, it wasn't a command or a wish, but a statement of fact for going to hell is a possibility. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, where Jesus addresses the question, does hell exist? Luke 16, starting with verse 19, we pick up this account. And what is admittedly a very unpleasant topic. Now there was a certain rich man and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at the gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. 
And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things. And likewise, Lazarus, bad things. But now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm that's fixed, in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. But he said, No. Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if somebody rises from the dead. In this passage, Jesus confronts the religious leaders with an unpleasant topic. You know, it's one that we hear very little, if any, about in our culture. American church historian Martin Marty summarized our attitude toward a vanishing doctrine that, you know, received a lot of careful attention in previous generations with this observation. He said, hell has disappeared and no one has noticed. Unbelievers disbelieve it. Most Christians ignore it. And not many pastors preach on it. Ask yourself this question. When was the last time you heard an entire sermon preached on hell? Which brings us to the question for today. And that is, does hell exist? You know, according to the Bible, the answer is a resounding yes. You know, consider the following words and descriptions that are found throughout the scriptures. In the Old Testament, the word Sheol is used. And it refers to the realm of departed spirits who, though they're absent from their body, continue to live and are very much aware and conscious of their presence. For example, Jacob, we're told in Genesis 49, went down into Sheol and was gathered to his people. For some, it was a place that they would dwell with God with blessings. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, Psalm 23. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I will be in his presence forever. For others, it was a place of gloom, indicating, as, as we'll learn from this text, that there are two distinct regions in Sheol. And the question is, why two distinct places? And the answer is very simply found throughout Scripture because, uh, you know, there are two different types of inhabitants. The Bible says that this is the way of those who are foolish. As sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. And their form shall be for Sheol to consume, that they may have, that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. Psalm 49, 13 and 15. And perhaps one of the clearest expressions of immortality is found in the book of Daniel. Where we read these words in Daniel 12, 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground, these to everlasting life but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. You know, the Bible says that those who die continue to live, even though physically they're absent from their bodies. And that even Job, 
records these, we have these words recorded that Job had spoken. He says in Job 19, 25 through 27, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and my eyes shall see and not another, and my heart faints within me at the very thought. In John chapter 11, at the funeral, or at the death of, of Lazarus, he was confronted by Lazarus' sisters. And Martha, therefore, when she heard Jesus was coming in John 11, went to meet him in verse 20, but Mary still sat in the house. And Martha said to him, Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Because she had seen him raise others from the dead. She knew that he had the power over death, and somehow it was his fault because Lazarus died. If you would have been there, hey, you could have done something about this. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother shall rise again. And Martha said, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. She understood what the Old Testament taught, that one day, even though people died, they would continue to live, and that they would be reunited or resurrected from the dead, and that they would have a resurrected body. As Job said, even though my skin is destroyed, I shall still see him one day through my flesh. I shall see him with my eyes. And so the doctrine was taught, and here again, if that doctrine was incorrect, Jesus could have corrected that misconception, but he didn't do that. She said, I know that my brother will live on the last day. And Jesus said, yes, that's true, but there's something more important I want to tell you. I am the resurrection and the life. And he began to reveal to her the fact that she needed to trust in him if she wanted to raise to everlasting life and not everlasting torment and contempt. In the Old Testament, we find a sharp distinction between the wicked and the righteous with the clear implication that they have separate destinies in the afterlife. Though this division of Sheol is not expressly stated, later rabbis clearly taught that Sheol has two compartments, and in this particular passage, Jesus concurs with their conclusion. Sheol was a general term for the region of departed spirits. A scholar B.B. Warfield wrote this, Israel, from the beginning of its recorded history, cherished the most settled conviction of the persistence of the soul and life after death. The body is laid in the grave, and the soul and the spirit departs for Sheol. The righteous and the wicked enter, though when they arrive, they don't have the same experience. The door to what uh, we can expect after physical death, while it's just open, just a glimpse for us in the Old Testament, the door is kicked down for us in the New Testament. We've learned that the Hebrew word Sheol is used for the realm of the dead in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, which was written in Greek, it's translated Hades. So every time we read in the New Testament about Sheol, it's translated Hades, but it's the, same, it's, a, it's the same experience. It's the same place that is referred to all throughout the Old Testament. So the word Hades is used 11 times in the New Testament. Uh, the Bible gives the following descriptions of hell. We're told that the word Gehenna is used 12 different times. It's the Aramaic of the Hebrew uh, Gehenom, which is the Valley of Hinnom. If you go back to the Old Testament, you'll see in 2 Kings 23 and 10 that that was a place where children were burned and offered up as sacrifices to the false god Moloch. 
And so when we see it in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, it's a region just south of Jerusalem where they burn trash or garbage and it continually burned. And Jesus used it as a word picture for what hell was like. Just as there was trash that was burned in Gehenna. So that was the case when he talked about the eternal flames of hell. We see in 2 Peter 2.4, it talks about uh, Tartarus, which is, the, which is a bottomless pit. And it referred to the angels who rebelled against God and how they were sent to this particular area. If you want to look at that, it's very descriptive as, as far as what is to be expected. In 2 Peter, we read in verse uh, 2 and verse 4, we find these words. It says, For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell. And committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly thereafter, what he's saying is, hey, that was a warning to the rest of us who would come later on of the judgment of God for rebelling against God and choosing to do what's wrong. If he rescued righteous Lot oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, and we see the sin of homosexuality was blatant in their culture. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. God's people should feel the same, tormented and tortured and in agony. Those of us who are sensitive to what is right before God and what is wrong, and we look at what's going on in the world around us, we should be tortured by what's happening. We should be tormented by the liberal judges that are taking their stand throughout our country and are trying to promote an ungodly lifestyle and behavior patterns throughout our country. Obviously, the judge that, that, uh, that rendered his uh, verdict in Brooklyn, New York, certainly wasn't one of them. But as we look at this, he was tormented. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. We look at this and we read about this. The lake of fire is used five times. The bottomless pit, nine times. Outer darkness, eight times. The second death, everlasting punishment, everlasting destruction, a place of torment. And with all that in mind, in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31, Jesus pulls back the curtain so that we can see into Hades or Sheol with more clarity. Here we're given some very specific details about what hell is like, both for those who die, in this particular case Hades, both for those who die as believers and as believers as well as those who die as unbelievers. And you'll notice that Jesus accepted the rabbi's teaching of Hades that it had two compartments. And and remember in the context, Jesus was emphasizing to the money-loving Pharisees how the fortunes of rich people might someday be reversed in the world to come. He told a story that takes us behind the veil which separates the dead from the living. And don't miss his point. The point is not this. And I want to get this clearly out front. The point is not all rich people go to hell and all poor people go, uh, you know, and all poor people go to heaven. That is not the point. But he's going to say that the point and, and the message and the, and, the, and the moral of the story 
is that, you know, we need to take a good hard look at our heart and our inner condition to see if it lines up with God. It says is true of those who are truly trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, who are truly redeemed by the will of God and the work of the Holy Spirit, and not just say these words with our mouth. He was saying to the religious leaders, and it was a direct assault and confrontation to them, you people love money, you do not love God, and this is what happens to people who love money and not God. And now he goes and he tells them this story. In this example story, Jesus introduces his listener to two people. One who selfishly used money and had wrong priorities. The other who had no money, but he had right priorities. And so we look at this contrast. And I want to go through it just one item at a time. The contrast between the rich man and Lazarus. The first thing that we're told in verse 19, there was a certain poor man named Lazarus. And in, I'm sorry, in verse 20 and in verse 19, there was a certain rich man who habitually dressed in purple and in fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And there was a contrast. There was a poor man named Lazarus. The rich man doesn't, isn't given a name. It isn't an individual. It is a, it, it, collectively, it's everybody who is a wealthy person who puts their trust and their faith and their hope in their material possessions rather than in God. He's saying that, you know what, here was a guy who put his hope and his faith and his trust and what he accumulated this side of eternity. He dressed nice. He looked good. He had good parties. He lived this way every day. He lived the good life, as we would say in our culture. And he's saying that this is the person who wrongly is wrongly uh, mistaken and believes that, you know what, that's what it's all about. I finally arrived. If I just have another dollar, if I just have another promotion, if I just get another car, if I just get another house, if I just have another possession of some sort, then I'll be satisfied, then I'll be fulfilled, then life will have meaning and purpose. And everyone who buys into that, this whole idea of wealth meaning self-sufficiency and and, and, uh, independence and opportunity to enjoy material things at our leisure anytime that we want, wherever we want. He was saying to them, and he's already said this once, he said that the Pharisees were lovers of money in verse 14 of this same chapter. He said they loved money. And he was warning those who love money that money will not sustain you throughout eternity. If you love money and, love, and do not love God, then you are in for a very rude awakening. You may have had everything this side of the eternal curtain, but when the curtain is peeled back for you, you will find one day that none of that makes any difference. And that was the warning that he had. And it's a warning not only to them, it's a warning to all of us. On the other hand, he could be anyone. This man could be you. This man could be me. On the other hand, we learn of Lazarus, a name that is derived from Eleazar, which means that God helps or God has helped. He is the only named person which is significant in any of Jesus' example stories or parables. He's the only person that's ever named. He was a real person who lived in real history at a moment in time, and God used his life forever in his word to help explain the doctrine of hell. He said, this man counted and leaned upon the Lord. God has helped. The other man leaned upon himself. The other man trusted in his riches. The poor man trusted in God. It's not hard to see where this story is going. Another contrast is found in available resources. Notice what I've already mentioned. It says that this man habitually dressed in purple, which was a sign of royalty. He, and, and fine linen, which is, a, which is a word that's used of an undergarment. 
And so the man dressed ex- externally in, fine pur- in purple, which was a sign of royalty and wealth. He had fine linen or he had fancy underwear. You know, you know put it in our culture so we can understand the guy had expensive underwear. You know, he lived gaily, lived in splendor every day. This guy didn't go out for an occasional special meal. This guy didn't wait for that anniversary or that birthday or that special occasion. This guy ate like he was, you know, it was a special occasion every day. And that was his lifestyle. We see this contrast. There was a certain rich man and there was a certain poor man. There was one who dressed habitually in purple. There was one who was laid at the gate. There was one who had fancy underwear. And there was another guy who was laying at the gate of this guy's house covered with sores. There was a person who ate in splendor every day. And there was a guy who had nothing to eat and looked for the time when this guy would just throw his trash out so he could get something to eat. There was a man that was laying in front of his house, a man that I believe was sent by God to warn this man of what was to come, and he ignored him. In that particular day, rather than have napkins, they used bread. And when their hands would get greasy and get dirty and there would be food on it, they would take bread and they would just wipe their hands with bread. And then they would throw that bread for the dogs to eat. This man waited for the day that this man would just wipe his hands off and throw his dirty bread out before him so he would have something to eat. One man's trash is another man's treasure. And he was waiting for that. And this is the contrast, and the contrast is a very vivid one. It's a contrast that makes us and helps us to understand, you know, the, 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 uh, the drastic differences between these two people. And it's to make a point that I hope that none of us miss. But when you stop and think about this, this man who's laying in the street and his do- these wild dogs are licking the open sores on his body and he was unclean, not just because of the sores, but these dogs, they went around and they probably licked the carcasses of dead animals. And if you touch something dead, you were unclean, ceremonial unclean. And so here was, a, here was a man laying there and the dogs were licking him and he was waiting just to lick the crumbs off of a piece of dirty bread from a guy who lived this way every day. And don't miss this. You know what? There was probably some discretionary income that the guy could have taken care of the needs of the poor man, but he didn't do it. He didn't care about him. He ignored him. He didn't care about his plight. He didn't care about what was going on. And so the story is very clear. There was a man who had a great life and there was a poor man who did not. The rich man threw away food. The poor man must scrounge for it and look for that thrown away food. Some people have nothing. Others have expensive underwear. You know, observing the scene, we might well conclude that God's blessed the rich man and somehow, you know, he has cursed Lazarus because maybe he was lazy, maybe he didn't go to work, whatever it is that we justify and rationalize why poor people are poor and rich people are rich. And in the story, Lazarus never speaks, but his life speaks volumes, not only to the rich man, but all who see him. His situation is so pathetic that no one would likely hear him say anything even if he spoke. Here's dire need that the rich man could have easily met, even with leftovers sticking to old bread. And he didn't have any sense of obligation to those who are less fortunate. The Bible says for those of God's people, we rich, that we work so that we will have riches or material possessions so that we may give those who have need in their time of need. Ask yourself the question, God, why have you blessed me as you have? And the answer is found very specifically in Scripture, so that you may be generous and show the compassion of God unto those who are less fortunate. 
If you love God, you will love your neighbor. This man did not love God, and it was evident by the fact he did not love his neighbor laying at the gate of his house. And that's the point of the story. But there's more to it. Because the story is not about money, it's about roots. It's about the roots of our heart. Where do they reach? What nourishes them? Are our roots tied to earthly treasure? Or do we store up for ourselves treasures in heaven where rust and moth won't destroy and thieves cannot break in to steal? Where is our treasure? That's where our heart is. That's why, again, I remind you, Jesus said, you cannot love God and money. You will love the one and you'll despise the other. God, don't tell me what to do with my resources. They're mine. And that's what this rich man was all about. You can't tell me what to do. I don't care how many poor people you drop at my gate. I'll walk over their crummy bodies because it's mine and I'm not giving it to anybody else. And that was his heart. And it'll be revealed as we go through this text. There was a film not many years ago that stormed even the evangelical world. Some of you probably saw it. It's on a sensitive issue of abortion. It was called The Silent Scream. Christians, rightly so, were up in arms over what we saw in that film. And yet at the same time, the cultural critics have charged that Western Christians have great compassion about life while it is in the womb, but could care less about the lives of persons once they're born. And I ask myself the question, is that true? We fight for the unborn, but once they're born and they have needs, hey, you know what, (laughs) You know, we we talk about reaching the world with the word, and I'll continue to do that, and that's the right thing that we need to do. But also, I recognize as I study Scripture that Jesus always met the physical needs of people before they were satisfied to listen to spiritual truth. And, and, And as a church and as God's people, I'm really challenged and I'm convicted by the fact that we need to be looking into how we can be reaching others by meeting their physical needs in a way that they will then be open to listen to the gospel of God's great compassion and love. Because how can God have compassion and love on people if he's not willing to meet their basic needs for food? I'm not talking about people who are unwilling to work. And that's one of my biggest gripes against our welfare system and things of that nature. You know, it, we have created an environment in our country where basically we've told people and encouraged people, you know what, we're going to take care of you even though you can work. The fact you don't want to work, we still feel an obligation to you. And that is not biblical. Let him who works work. He who cannot work, then God's people should step up and take care of their needs. This man was lame. He was crippled. He couldn't work. He couldn't take care of himself. He was in a a terrible position health-wise. He had open sores all over him. He couldn't go out and work. He wasn't lazy. He had a genuine need. And God told that rich man every day when he saw him lay there, meet his need do something for him but he had no heart for god he had no heart for people god god's people cannot be heartless people or we're not god's people we need to be open to look at the needs of the world around us and find a way to meet those needs so that when they are satisfied their greater need of spiritual thirst will then be open to receive the living water of jesus christ as savior See, we talk all about these things, and, and as I said often, you know, we just need to do stuff. We need to do it. We need to quit talking about it, quit praying about it. Yeah, pray about it until God makes what His will is known, and then, you know what, then do it. But the rich man didn't love God. If he had, he would have loved his neighbor, the guy laying out in front of his house every day. And he didn't do it. The story exposes our values as it now considers Lazarus from an eternal perspective. Some time has passed. We're not told how much time has passed. The rich man and Lazarus both both die. 
And we're told it came about in verse 22 that the poor man died. And he was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and he was buried. So we're told that there was, you know, not only this re- the resources that were so different, but there was death. And even in death, there was a difference. They both died. The great equalizer in all of life is that, you know, Ecclesiastes Solomon wrote, you know, I've, I've seen one destiny is the same for all, whether you're rich or poor. Whether you've got fancy underwear or you're begging out in the street, doesn't matter. Everyone's going to die. So you think, well, I'll be paying attention to that event. So what's it all about? What happens? Is there life after death? What can we expect? What can we look forward to? Does heaven exist? Everybody says, yes, I like heaven. Does hell exist? No, bad. It's a, it's a downer. You know, it's depressing. It's, you know, it's, I, I, I like heaven. Hell, no. And, and so when we look at this, we see that in death, you know, this is a wonderful thing. Lazarus was carried by the angels of God to Abraham's bosom. Man, that beats a chauffeur-driven limousine any day. You can have them come pick you up every day. But if those, those angels aren't there to carry you into the presence of God after this life, then you know what? Those, those, those chauffeur-driven rides will just be a memory that will torment you for all of eternity. And we're told the rich man was buried. And being in torments was in Hades. Notice the contrast in their life after death. Lazarus is now comforted. He is comforted. And the rich man is tormented. The term was used uh, for the kind of punishment a slave received to get a confession of wrongdoing. And it helps me to understand what exactly takes place. It's as though people that go to hell are tormented in order to bring about a confession that they are guilty as charged before God. See, the passage's mood is set by the distance and the difference between the two figures. Everything is reversed. The changes are all permanent. And I want you to notice from this passage, we get a very vivid, chilling description of what one who refuses to repent and respond to the finished work of Christ on the cross, His death and resurrection, and fail to receive Him as Lord and Savior, can expect after physical death. Notice this. This man was fully conscious in Hades. He was being tormented. When I read through this, I couldn't help but see how many times we're told of his actions. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes. He could see. He was in torment. He was being tortured. And he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus with him. And he cried out as if he was yelling for a far distance. He cried out so they would heard. Have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. I can see, I can feel, I can taste, I can touch. And he still wasn't broken that he said, send him, this guy that laid out in the, in the front of my house, he's still my servant, he's still my slave, he's still below me, he's still beneath me, I still think nothing of him. Send him to come to me and dip his finger in water and put it on my tongue. He still didn't quite get it and understand it. He didn't recognize this reversal of fortunes. He didn't recognize what was going on from the standpoint, he still was demeaning to Lazarus. And it reveals his heart even further through eternity. How he looked down upon this man. He turned up his nose at him. He thought he was better than him. God help us to never turn up our nose at any human being who's created in the image and likeness of God. He was aware of his situation. He could communicate. 
And I thought about this. In Hades, an alcoholic will thirst for a drop of liquor and none will be given. A drug addict will crave for a fix to no avail. The immoral people will burn with sexual lust but never be satisfied. There will be an increase in desires and a decrease in satisfaction. Proverbs 27.20 says, In Sheol, or as we translate in the Greek in the New Testament, in Hades. Hades is never satisfied, nor are the eyes of man. Can you imagine living eternally with a lack of satisfaction, a lack of fulfillment, a lack of contentment, no peace, no purpose, eternally tormented? And yet his arrogance continued toward Lazarus. We know that he had an awareness of his tongue. We told that he sees from a distance. And perhaps it's insight, and I'm not dogmatic on this, as to the fact that those who die have temporary bodies before the final resurrection. I don't know, although we know that when Lazarus, I mean, when Elijah and Moses appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, they recognized who they were. And I don't know if God gave them an awareness or they could actually see a physical presence. I don't know, and I'm not dogmatic about that. But the reality is, is that the Bible tells us for those who believe in Christ, when we're absent from our body, we'll be present with the Lord. The New Testament clearly teaches that. Paul said, I'm confident of this very thing, that the day I'm absent from my body, I'll be present with the Lord. I'm torn between going to be with the Lord for that that is much better or being here with you to serve you and minister to you. And so I'm kind of torn between two, but it's a win-win no matter what for God's people so we can live in victory knowing that that's the case. But there's, there's, there's an identity here that those who die, we don't know if we have a, you know, a temporary body before the resurrection, before the Lord comes back. We who are alive will be caught up in the air, you know, will be changed in a twinkling of an eye. We know that that day will come, but we're not sure. But, you know, it just gives us insight But for now, we contrast the hope that they have. Lazarus is comforted. The rich man was in torment. There's an eternal destiny that's irrevocably fixed. Notice what he says. And besides all of this, between us and you, there is a great chasm that is fixed. The word means that it is eternally set in stone. It is not going to change. It is not negotiable. And this violates those who say, well, eventually after people work their way through hell, God will ultimately forgive all people. And the Bible does not teach that. It's another lie from the pit of hell itself to deceive people into believing they can live any way they want. And ultimately, God will have to free them or let them loose. The chasm is fixed. It is appointed for man to die once, then comes judgment. There's no do-overs, there's no negotiation, and we'll see this from this context. And we need to understand it and be aware of it, because it will affect the decisions that we make today if we believe that is true. Eternally fixed. No second chances. And once this is sunk in, we're told that the man became interested in missions. Notice in verse... Notice in ver- no, notice this, and I read this and I went, wow. He said in verse 27, the concern of the rich man for his brothers is just fascinating to me. He said to them, I beg you, Father, that you send him. Here you go, send who? Send Lazarus. He's still doing my errands for him. This guy is just like... He said, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they come to the place of torment. I want you to see, why did this man want Lazarus sent to his brothers? First of all, he already picked up on the fact he wasn't getting out of there. 
You know what I'm saying? He didn't say, hey, send me and I'll go back and warn him. It was like, you know what? That's like a prisoner asking a guard to let him go so he can tell people, you know, to straighten up. Uh, no, that ain't happening. You're not getting out of here. He said, well, if I'm not getting out of here, it looks like maybe Lazarus can go back. Will you send him back? And the reason that he wanted to send them is very clear. He says, that, you know what? So they won't come to this place of torment. I need to warn my brothers that hell exists. And he knew they would end up there because they were just like him. He knew that. They trusted in themselves. They didn't trust in God. They laughed at those who were broken and humble, who trusted in, in, in the God of the Old Testament at that time. It's like people today that laugh at those who trust in Jesus Christ's death on the cross and His resurrection for their sins. We hear people mock and sneer and make ridiculing remarks about those people, those Jesus freaks, people like that. And we hear it all the time, the religious right. We hear those phrases. They mock people. They ridicule them. Because why? Because they have been broken at heart and they have cried out to God for forgiveness. And they have trusted in Christ to forgive them His death on the cross, the power of His resurrection. They receive Him as Lord and Savior. And the mocking, sneering world says, you know what? To that. You can have it. We don't need it. And he knew his brothers. And they were just like him. And he knew that because he ended up there, they would end up there. And please somebody go warn them. And let me tell you something. This is a perfect example of this truth. Good people go to hell. You say, what are you talking about? Well, you know what? This guy isn't totally rotten. He treats Lazarus with contempt. But he must have cared and had compassion for his brothers. He cared for them. Sin nature is this. We're not as totally bad as we can be. And we're not totally as good as we can be. And the fact is we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God is what condemns us before God. There's none of us righteous. No, not one. We've all sinned. We've all turned from God. That's what condemns us. Are we totally miserable, depraved people? The answer is no. You know, Saddam Hussein's family probably thought he was a good guy. I mean, there were people in his life he probably took care of that thought, my dad's a good guy. He just got a bad rap about killing millions of people. (laughs) But that's the way we think, isn't it? No one's ever totally evil. No one's ever totally good. We're all sinners. And so this man said, hey, you know what? I love my brothers. Send somebody to go warn them. You know what he realized? He realized when his brothers got to hell, they wouldn't be partying together for eternity. I hear these nonsensical statements. It's like, well, at least I'll be with my friends and my family and we'll just party together for eternity. Really? This guy sounds like he's not having much of a party. He is being tormented. He is tortured. He is tormented. He is not satisfied or content. He doesn't want his brothers to be there. And so he said, please send someone to warn them. And I want you to also notice this. There is not a single complaint coming from this man's lips that somehow he has been unjustly condemned. He's not saying, hey, I got a bad rap, man. This isn't fair. Hey, 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 guard, let me out of here. I didn't do this. Because when you face a perfect God, every flaw, every sin, every thought, every word, every deed will come back to where you are speechless before God. 
You will have no excuse. You will have no grounds to negotiate. You will have no appeal process. You will be condemned for all of eternity because what God says about you and me is true. We are all sinners before God. Period. He didn't complain once how he was treated unfairly. He knew he deserved exactly what it is that God was doing to him. Justice was being served. And that's not hard to understand. It's not hard to believe. All we got to do is go into our prisons. And there are people that sit there and know, you know what? I'm here because I deserve to be here. What I did was wrong and I'm serving my time. I'm paying my price. The thief on the cross said, you know, what's wrong with you? Don't you even fear God? We are, we are getting what we deserve. This, this man, speaking of Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. Don't you even fear God? Lord, remember me today when you come into your kingdom. A broken man who recognizes guilt before God. The problem was it was too late for this man. He needed to recognize his guilt before God this side of eternity when the window of opportunity was extended to him. But instead, he walked over the warnings of God. He walked over the warnings of the prophets. He walked over everything that God had to say. And I want you to notice his re the reply of Abraham where he says, But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They and he and us have God's word. We need to believe what he says. Case closed. Everything man needs to know is found in the Word of God. The law and the prophets led men to recognize their need for a Savior to be forgiven because the law exposes our sin. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife or thy neighbor's goods. You know, thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You know what? And every one of us look at that checklist and go, always? Yeah, always. Eh, didn't do it. Can't do it. Exactly. So the law is there to show us our guilt. God knows our guilt. We just don't know our guilt. Once we recognize our guilt, we say, God, what can we do? And he said, you can't do anything, but I loved you. I did everything for you. I sent my son to die on the cross in your place. I sent him to die for you if you would just believe in him and trust in his death and his resurrection. If you will receive him as your Lord and Savior, then you will be adopted into my family. You'll be a child of God to those who believe in my name. And you will never experience the torment of hell because Jesus experienced it for you. See, you know, notice he was, you know, was biblically correct, the reasoning. Notice what he says. I have five brothers. Warn them so that, if, you know, that they also don't come to this place of torment. But he says, no, you have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. That was his reply. No, you know what? Let them hear from God himself and act upon God's word. And notice there's still, still a debate going on. He said, but, you know, which but means, oh, no, I don't agree with what you said. But, but Abraham, well, wait a minute, but no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. The guy knew how to share the gospel. He was concerned for missions. I don't want my brothers to be here. 
Go and warn them. What do you have to warn them? Warn them that hell exists. Warn them that everything that God has said throughout human history, that we have to repent from sin, recognize we're sinners, repent from sin, turn from sin, turn to God, trust in God's plan. Whatever it is, at that point, they didn't know other than throw themselves on the mercy of God. We now know that the mercy of God is found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We throw ourselves upon God's mercy at the foot of the cross. God, forgive me for I'm a sinner. He is saying to them, they must repent if they're going to avoid hell. That's the gospel. The beginning words of the gospel always repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We never hear words of repentance. We never hear words of brokenness. We never hear turning from sin. We hear things like, add Jesus to your life. There's something missing. Stir, and maybe that'll be what you're missing. That is not the gospel. It is not the gospel. The gospel is recognize that you are a sinner before God and you're on your way to hell and you need to turn from sin, turn to God, trust in Christ, His death, His resurrection, receive Him as Savior, and the Bible says, and then you are born again by the will of God and not by your own human efforts. And the only way that you and I can avoid hell is by trusting what Jesus did for us on the cross. That's it. And the world doesn't want to hear that because it's too exclusive. It's too narrow. Oh, you mean like the narrow way that leads to eternal life versus the broad way that leads to hell? Yeah, just like that. You mean like I'm the only way? I'm the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father but through me? Yes, exactly, just like that. That is the message of God's Word. And He says, believe what God says or you will burn and be tormented in hell for all of eternity. But it's your choice. It's your choice. He clearly understood God's plan of salvation. And it's a reminder to me that, you know what, there will be nobody in hell who will be there unjustly. Because the God of righteousness will do what is right. There will be no one that said, no one told me what I needed to do to avoid hell. The word of God is clear. That he has given and entrusted to men the mysteries of the knowledge of God. And he has commissioned us to go into the world preaching the gospel of repentance. And receiving Christ, his death and his resurrection. As the penalty that was paid on our behalf. That is the message. That is the word of God. And we either believe him or we don't. But he wasn't done there. He went and said this. But if someone comes back from the dead... Then they'll believe. And let me just tell you about miracles. Signs and wonders. Jesus said it is a wicked and adulterous generation who seek signs. Because the revelation of God's word is better than any sign that could ever be given. They saw the signs. They saw Jairus' daughter raised from the dead. They saw the widow of Nain's son sit up as he was being taken out of the city. They saw Lazarus, later resurrected, come forth out of the tomb. They saw him. You know what they decided to do? They plotted to kill him. If we can get rid of the evidence, we don't have to deal with the message. And the message is this. Jesus Christ Christ. Is God in human flesh, the Savior of the world, the only name given under heaven by which men can be saved? We don't want that message. We don't like that message. We'll kill the evidence. We'll plot to kill Lazarus. Can you imagine? Here's a guy that went through a lot as it was. And he was resurrected to the conspiracy of men who wanted to kill him again. 
But Jesus' answer was, there's one last sign. There's one final emphasis. There's one emphatic exclamation point. And that is his own resurrection after his suffering and his death. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The evidence historically is overwhelming. It is irrefutable. And people today still refuse to believe. They still refuse to believe. If you don't want to go to hell, that is what you must believe. The Old Testament's message was clear on what God required of those who know him. I I ran across a phrase and I like it, and that is this. Deep pockets is what God requires that have holy holes. All throughout the word of God, God's love and compassion was to be demonstrated upon people who did not know God by God's people as they met their physical needs. God said, you know what? Take a portion of your field and leave it for the poor so that people, poor people will see that God truly does love them. He has blessed you and he has blessed me as God's people so that we can have deep pockets that have holes in it so that we can meet the physical needs of people in our life so that we earn the right to be able to share with them the greatest story they'll ever hear and that is a God's love and redemption that's found in Christ. And when they see our love for them, it will be easy for them to see God's love as well. See, the rich man, you know, he doesn't give up. He continued to debate. He continued to argue. And his argument was not going to hold water. And the reality of it is, is that, you know what? You either believe God's word or you don't. I ran across a quote from Augustine. And he lived before scholars chewed up the scriptures according to their personal whims. Nevertheless, even in his day, some people believed what they wanted and discarded the rest. We see nonsense all the time, the Da Vinci Code and all this other nonsense that's out there. You know what? That is just absolute foolishness from the pit of hell, has no historical reliability whatsoever. It's promoted by a secular culture that cannot stand Jesus Christ or the gospel of Jesus Christ, that hates God and wants to be able to make an own religion so we can all just do what we want to do whenever we want to do it, not be accountable to anybody. There's nothing new under the face of the sun, and there's nothing new under heaven and earth. You know what? It's a lie from the pit of hell goes back to the garden where, you know what, the devil said, you don't have to listen to God, you can do what you want, you can have your cake and eat it too. And the reality of it is, is here's what Augustine wrote. He says, if you believe what you like in the Gospels and reject what you don't like, it is not the Gospel you believe, but yourself. And I say amen also. If you believe what you want and don't like what you don't want, it's not God who you believe, but it's yourself. If I go to the doctors and I look at my scan and I look at things and I say, I don't like to believe this part, I'll believe that part. It's like, it's not the doctors I believe, it's not the scan I believe, it's not the objective medical counsel that I get. It's a fact I don't want to believe it. And the reality of it is, is that people don't want to believe there's hell because they don't want to go there. And yet that's exactly where they'll end up if they do not repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Remember, it is not... That all rich people go to hell and all poor people go to heaven. It's a matter of our hearts. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. 
For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. And with his tongue he confesses unto salvation. Those who truly know and have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, those who are truly children of God because God says so, will be people who are compassionate toward those who are less fortunate. And they will reflect the love of God to those around them. In closing, recently I, I read in a modern-day obituary of a man who, according to his friends, was a hell of a guy. And when I read this, it gave me chills. And I want to read just parts of it for you. The headline was, Spanky lived fast and furious. He was the life of the party and he spent his last years boating and celebrating with friends. For years, Spanky had been ready for retirement, for life on the river, for life in shorts, bathing suits and thongs. No long pants. For five years, he got to live his fantasy. He spent endless days on the river water skiing and cruising in his fast boat or even his faster boat partying with river friends and building his dream house in Needles right on the water. That's a huge place. It's perfect for his huge parties. But Spanky got to spend only a few weeks there, and by that time he was dying. He was diagnosed with myeloma a year ago. He was 60 when the cancer took his life on July 23rd. He lived larger than life. He was 6'3", 200 pounds. He had a voice that needed no megaphone, a monstrous presence wherever he went, the life of the party and the king of the river. When he partied, he wanted the music at top volume. When he bought a boat, he wanted it to be the fastest. His cars had to be black or white, and his boats, bathing suits, and caps had to be red. It was almost a declaration of his love for life. And he did love life. He loved his kids and their, and their friends. He loved his VO bourbon and water. He loved steak and lobster and shrimp and big fat cigars. He could turn anything, even a child's soccer part, practice, into a party. Death didn't come as easily to Spanky's life. He could not acknowledge the seriousness of his illness, and he called it just a little inconvenience. Next week, I'll be back on the river, he insisted toward the end. And he did not, as the famous Dylan Thomas poem suggests, go gentle into the good night. Spanky, in fact, fought death for hours after his family assured him it was okay to let go. And at the very end, he threw up his arms up over his head as if to ward off the angels that were coming for him and uttered one last word, No! Hell does exist. And it's not an amusing subject. And if listening to this message has been frightening, the good news is that if God grants you the desire to put your trust in Jesus Christ that you may escape hell you're invited to do so even here and now. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Thankfully, there is a way of escape. We can be forever shielded from the wrath to come. The ultimate fire insurance policy was purchased by Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, and his resurrection from the dead to all who believe. Men and women, there's nothing funny about hell. There's nothing funny about hell. We need to have a burden for those who have never trusted in Christ. We need to have a sense of urgency that we have never had before. We need an understanding from God's word that what he says is true, that God is just that he does love people 
that He has provided a provision for our sins, but He also has provided justice for those who refuse to trust in Christ. Does hell exist? The Bible says it certainly does. And God will help us to avoid that fate if we trust in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I'm, as, I, as I study your word, as I hear your description of hell, it scares me. It's frightening. I'm frightened for those like this rich man, for those in my family and those who are my friends, those who I work with, those in my neighborhood, those whom I've never met that are on their way to hell. I thank you that you have called us from darkness to light. I thank you that you had given me a desire to turn from sin and to trust in Jesus Christ, His death on the cross and His resurrection. And to receive Him as my Savior so that I will never have to have the wrath of God poured out upon me. I thank you for the precious blood of Jesus Christ who has saved me from that fate. I pray for those who are here that may not know you. That may think that hell isn't real. They don't like the thought. But your word is clear. The evidence is overwhelming that today they will turn from sin. They will acknowledge their sin before you, that they're not perfect. On their best day, they're never good enough. And that they need your forgiveness. That they would pray a simple prayer, Father, forgive me. I don't want to go to hell. I want to spend eternity with you. And I acknowledge before you my guilt, my sinfulness, in words and thoughts and deeds. And I ask that you forgive me. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross. That he rose again from the dead. That he is alive. He hears my prayer. And I receive him as best I know how as my Lord and Savior. To protect me from the the flames of hell. God, I thank you for your love for me. That even when yet I was a sinner, you sent Christ to die. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the warning of hell. We thank you for the promises of heaven. God, I pray that your people will have a burden and a sense of responsibility to meet the physical needs of those who are less fortunate around us so that once those needs are met, that we have earned the right to tell them of your great love for them that's found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We look forward to what you will do through us being the light that you've called us to be, the salt which uh, attracts and creates spiritual thirst. And we will give you all the glory. We will give you all the praise throughout all of eternity for what you've saved us from. In Jesus' precious and holy and righteous name, amen.